Well, tonight uh, we are going to look at uh, propitiation. We're looking at the work of Christ, the atonement. We are trying to uh, unpack what the atonement means. What does it mean that Jesus died for us? Uh, And we've looked at some general concepts that the death of Jesus uh, is a sacrifice. Uh, alluding to Old Testament sacrifices. We've looked at uh, the death of Jesus as an act of obedience, uh, as a category to understand the work of Christ, that he uh, obeyed. Uh, He obeyed as a servant uh, all that God had placed upon him. And then we've looked at two uh, particular words. Uh, They're not biblical words. They're certainly biblical ideas. Uh, and that is substitution and satisfaction. Substitution, he died for me uh, in my room, in my place, in my stead. He bore what, uh, what I deserved. I, I get what, what is his. Uh, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be reckoned Uh, the righteousness of God in him. And then last week we were looking at the idea of satisfaction. We were thinking especially of a statement in the Westminster Confession uh, where it summarizes the work of Christ as satisfying divine justice. That in the work of Christ uh, there is a satisfaction of divine justice. Well, this word propitiation is closely related to all of those concepts, particularly the concept of substitution and satisfaction. Now, on the cover, uh, you'll see a quotation there from uh, Jim Packer, uh, from Knowing God. uh, And I I want you to pay close attention to that quotation uh, where he's making a distinction between two words. And these are not words that we use in everyday language. I doubt in the course of a day, unless you're quoting from the Bible, that you use either of these words, expiation or propitiation. And there is a difference between the two. And there's something of a a theological uh, brouhaha, a a theological quarrel, if you like, and a theological argument uh, relating to the use of expiation and propitiation. And by a certain... Uh, a certain contingent that we shouldn't be using the word propitiation at all. Instead, we should be using the word expiation. And all of this gets very complicated because we live in an age where there are multiple um, translations and, and, and I may, as a preacher, assume that you're all reading uh, the ESV or, or whatever or reading straight out of the Hebrew if you're Dr. Davis, uh, which, which means he doesn't have any of these problems. Uh, but most of us have these problems that we're, that we're facing multiple translations that imply different words to translate uh, uh, various Hebrew or, or Greek uh, words. And there's always a, a theological agenda. It's not just uh, an issue of translation uh, as though everyone is agreed on how to translate something. There's, there's always a theological agenda afoot Uh, in the process of that uh, translation. So notice the quotation from J.I. Packer. 
uh, where he makes the distinction between expiation and propitiation. And we'll come back to it several times uh, in, in the course of our study tonight. But think of it like this, and this is what uh, Jim Packer is saying in this statement, that expiation deals with the effect of the atonement on our sin. Propitiation deals with the effect of the atonement on God. Right? So there are two quite distinct ideas. They're related ideas. Actually, they're intimately related. The one leads to the other. But there are two there are two categories of thought here. How does the atonement relate to my sin? And what it does to my sin is that it covers it. And how does the atonement relate to God? And in relation to God, his wrath, his, his divine anger is fully satisfied. His divine anger is dealt with in some way. Uh, but there is a, a distinction between uh, these two words, expiation and propitiation. Now, uh, there are various words here and word groups here, and we, we, we won't go into these in any detail here. Uh, Hebrew words, kipper and kofer, uh, verb and a noun, uh, to cover and a covering. Uh, and uh, this, this word group is, is, is what translates is what is translated, especially in the King James Version, as uh, the mercy seat, the lid of the ark. And we'll, we'll come back to that uh, a little later this evening. But the, the lid uh, of the ark, uh, made of, of hammered gold and, uh, and the, the, uh, the, uh, ch- the cherubs on the top looking, uh, looking down, uh, containing as it did the the tablets of stone and so on, the, the Ten Commandments, um, this, this covering, uh, this, this lid of the ark, the, the, the mercy seat it was called in the King James uh, Version, the mercy seat, and it's, uh, it's the same word uh, here, same, belongs to the same uh, word group. And sometimes in the New Testament, if you're familiar with the King James, for example, uh, or for that matter, even in the ESV, in Hebrews 9, uh, uh, this word is rendered as mercy seat. So there are, there are Hebrew words, kipper and kofer, and, and there is an entire slew of words in uh, the Greek, the halasmos word group, as it's sometimes referred to, um, that, is, that is right at the center of our topic tonight. How do you translate these words? And are they words that speak of expiation or are they words that speak of propitiation? What is in view with these words? Is it, is it our sin or is it God's anger, God's wrath? That, that's the nature of the debate and discussion. Well, let's begin. Let's try and dive in here. The, the, the issue can get a, a little complex in, in the... F- well, philology in, 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 the, in the study of the words, that can get a little complex. So let's, let's, let's back out and, and enter another door here, see if we can get a handle on this. The idea of expiation. And expiation, uh, and some of you can uh, recall perhaps from your English Bibles, uh, various translations, where uh, the word expiation occurs. And what does expiation mean? 
And expiation means something related to my sin. My sin is expiated. My sin is covered. Uh, think of the mercy seat. Same word, same, same idea. Uh, the mercy seat in uh, Exodus uh, 25 and then, and then repeated again in Exodus uh, 37 as uh, Moses gives us those two descriptions of the uh, construction of the tabernacle and all that went into the tabernacle, including the mercy seat. And, and what happened at the mercy seat? Well, on, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, uh, a high priest would enter uh, into the uh, inner sanctuary. He'd go beyond uh, the veil into the inner sanctuary uh, where the ark was uh, with its mercy seat and incense was uh, burnt and, and uh, the mercy seat was in, enveloped in, uh, in smoke. It was a rep- visual representation of the presence of God and, and blood. Uh, blood from the sacrificial uh, victim was, was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Now, think of it visually. Uh, you wouldn't be able to see it, but the high priest would be able to see it. You've got a box. It's like the ottoman at the end of your bed. How many of you have got an ottoman? Ottoman, that's the word, right? The ottoman at the end of your bed, and you have blankets, and, and uh, if it's our house, it's got uh, dogs, puppies, toys in there, the ones that he's mauled. Uh, and, and can't have any more, and they're, they're stuffed in there. And there's all sorts of things in the bottom of it uh, that haven't been seen in years. Um, but it's a, it's a box, uh, and it's about the size, roughly, depends, I'm, I'm conjecturing now, but it's about the size of uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And, and then you've got these two winged, uh, winged beings on the, on the top of the uh, Ark. It's made of... Uh, gold, it, it represents where the Shekinah glory would have been. It represents the presence of God. Now, what's in the box? What's in the box? There was a, right, there was a, there was a, a, a show back in the 60s. One of these, one of these dreadful shows and, and, and everyone would shout, what's in the box? Uh, and sometimes there was nothing in the box and sometimes there was a big prize in the box. Well, what's in this box? In this box is the law, the tablets of stone. It's the law, the law of God, the law that condemns. You, you, look, at this, you look at this law and it shouts back to you, you're a sinner. Right? These two tablets of stone would say, you're a sinner, you're unfit to be in the presence of God. So something has to cover the law, the guilt that is ours. And it's the blood, the blood of the sacrificial uh, victim sprinkled on the mercy seat. And it, it expiates, it deals with our it covers our sin. It provides a covering for our sin. The mercy seat was a covering for our sin. Visually, it, it almost said, didn't it, that, you know, the law is hidden from me. I, God, God, God has hidden the law from me. Now some, um, and, and here it gets a little complicated, but some conservative theologians, theologians we'd be happy with, um, some conservative theologians think it is sometimes, 
sometimes appropriate to translate, and and let's stick to the New Testament, to translate this, this entire word group, halasmas word group, the word that's sometimes rendered propitiation, that sometimes it's it's justifiable to translate that word by expiation and, and sometimes by propitiation. The ESV has not taken that view. The ESV has decided to translate almost, not, not entirely, but almost entirely using the word propitiation rather than expiation, except in Hebrews 9 where it, it, uh, it still has the, the, the term mercy seat. Uh, and, and, and we'll come back to that. When, when what's in view is, is the covering of our sin rather than what's taking place in God. Now the two are intimately related because how can sin be covered except that God's wrath against sin is dealt with in some way. You can't, you can't entirely separate these two. You can, you can, but you can, you can think about this distinction it is what's taking place here, is, is, it, is it dealing first of all with my sin or is it addressing something in God? Well, let's look at an example here. Uh, Hebrews 2, uh, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a, a, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, there's the word, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For the sins of the people. Now, some would argue, and these are, these are not liberals, these are conservative theologians who m- might argue, and they do argue, that in that particular instance, what's in view is not dealing with the wrath of God, but, but dealing with our sins because the text says for the sins of the people and what's in view is is that sin is covered sin the guilt of sin is is dealt with and uh, so some would say that uh, that perhaps uh, that word there needs to be translated not propitiation which we still haven't got to but but something like expiation now it all gets even more complicated because the King James Version, for some wholly unrecognizable reason, decided to use the word reconciliation there, which is entirely wrong. I, there's, there's absolutely no justification for that translation. Sorry, Dr. DeWitt. I apologize right now. Um, but, but the King James, I think, at that point was, 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 was wrong. It's, it's not the idea. There's, an, there's, a, there's a special word for reconciliation uh, in the New Testament, and it's not this word. Uh, so it's, it's either expiation or propitiation. Some, some ha- have... So, so if you read a Bible that says expiation in Hebrews 2.17, I'm, I'm not... I, you know, don't, don't shout liberal. Um, I, I, actually, there, there might be a justification. Might be a justification for it in that particular verse. First uh, John two two. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But the, the whole focus in First John two two is our sins. It's it's actually not addressing the, the issue of the character or the or the wrath of God. But but the whole focus is on. Is on our sins, and again, there are some 
conservative theologians who say that 1 John 2, 2, it, 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 it is appropriate to translate the word expiation rather than propitiation, uh, and so on. Well, let's, let's move on. Uh, ESV decided not to do any of that uh, and has gone for using the same word for translating this, this idea of halasmos, propitiation. Well, what does propitiation mean? I mean, how many of us have used the word propitiation in a sentence in the last year, let alone in the last uh, day or so? I, I mean, unless we're quoting from scripture now. Now, let me say, I've, having said all of that, and I wanted to say that just to keep some of my conservative friends happy because your Bible has the word expiation in it somewhere and, that, and, and it depends where it is as to whether, whether I'm happy or not with it but, but if your Bible doesn't have the word propitiation in it at all you need to get, get rid of that Bible at least fold it up, put it away put it in the ottoman in the bottom of it so that you don't see it for a couple of years and get yourself a new Bible one that says propitiation because you know, this is, this is where as Christians and as a Christian culture, you know, if we, don't, if we don't use this, this is not a word that you hear in everyday language. It's not a word in commerce. I, I'm not sure that it's a word in law, Mr. Whiting. I, I don't think it's a common word in law. I don't think it's in the medical profession as far as I know. Uh, propitiation doesn't sort of crop up so I don't think this so unless we use this word this word isn't going to be used why is this word important because there's no other word in the English language that does what this word needs to do this word is a word that's associated with the idea of the wrath of God that's what to propitiate means. It is to propitiate the wrath of God. That's what the word means. And there is no other word in the English language that we know of. And, and, if, and if somebody knows a word that would adequately translate, they need to step up very quickly because propitiate is not, a, it's not an easy word to say. But that, that means that you and I, if this word is important, I mean important enough for the likes of the ESV say to, to say we, we need a new translation here because, because sacrifice of atonement which is what the ESV ha, had used or, or some such translation um, if, if that's inadequate and only propitiation is an adequate word then we need to use it we need to use it and where can we use it so that it becomes part of our Language, vocabulary, well, in prayer. So, so here's my challenge to you. Um, next time you're praying, use the word propitiation. Now, you need to use it correctly. You need to understand what it means. But, and you may, you may just want to quote the uh, scripture. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That there's power in the blood of Christ to propitiate for everyone. And, uh, and, and to use that word propitiation, because if, if it's in the Bible, in our English Bible, that is, then we need to use it. Otherwise, otherwise it's going to die. And this issue that lies behind the word is going to crop up again and again. Now, let's get down to it. To propitiate, what does it mean to propitiate? It does not mean 
to make God love us. Now, sometimes the idea, maybe not the word, but the idea of propitiation is that God is kind of grumpy. You know, there are people and they're kind of grumpy. Uh, some of you, never you, of course, but it's some of your friends. And, and, and you know, there are just days when they're just grumpy. There are some that we know who are always grumpy. I mean, they're disposed to being grumpy. It's part of their nature to be grumpy. And, and God is, well, God, this is the idea, God is kind of reluctant. He needs to be persuaded. He needs to be cajoled into demonstrating love because that's not his, that's not his disposition. His disposition is to hurl thunderbolts down from Mount Sinai. That's his disposition. And Jesus kind of won him over. You know, he saw in Jesus something and, and it just won him over and, and sort of shushed him down a little bit. I'm, 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 I'm trying to give you a, a sort of communal garden interpretation and, and you hear that view uh, of propitiation. And that view of propitiation, that view of God, of course, is utterly abhorrent. And it is abhorrent. And if that's what propitiation means, then you should get rid of it. Because it's unworthy of God. It's an abhorrent view of God. It's a distasteful view of God. It's like, it's, it's like the God of the Greeks, the Greek gods, you know, who are fitful and angry and, 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 and temperamental. And you could, you could never predict what they would do. They were falling out among themselves, let alone with the, with the world of creatures. Propitiation is not concerned with hatred, but anger. And there's a difference between hatred and anger. You can be angry with someone. Oh, I have been angry with my puppy. I mean, when he chewed up the electrics on my sprinkler system... dug it out of the ground, wires and all. I was angry. I didn't hate him, though. You know, when he, when he brought me a piece of it in his mouth with those two brown eyes, I didn't hate him. I was angry with him. There's a difference between hatred and anger. The atonement didn't cause God to love us. Right? Be very suspicious of any view of the atonement, any view of the cross of Christ, as though he's trying to win over a reluctant, grumpy, heavenly father in some way. So to propitiate is not to make God love us. S- secondly, to love is not necessarily to be propitious. Right? One can love and not be propitious. God is love always. God is love. He's always love. And yet he is not propitious always. And I've given you here a little illustration of a mother who loves a child and may one day see that child cross the road in front of a, an oncoming vehicle. 
and she comes out to the sound of the screech of brakes, relieved that her child is safe. However, while she's relieved, she is angry that her child didn't look both ways. And the anger hasn't been assuaged. She loves, but, but the anger is still there. Now, here's a traditional, orthodox understanding of propitiation. That Christ expiated sin, covered sin, if you like, and thereby appeased the anger of God. And that's a traditional understanding of, of propitiation. That Christ expiated sin and thereby appeased the anger of God. Now it's, it's of course entirely linked with the concepts of substitution and satisfaction that we've been looking at in the past uh, couple of weeks. That Jesus' death is a substitution. He died for me. He died in my place. He took, he took my sin and bore the consequences of that sin in my room and in my stead. And in so doing, satisfies the justice of God. So Christ turns away or, or averts the divine anger that ought to be upon us by taking it upon himself. Right? And it's, it's, it's crucially important that any view of the cross must take into consideration the anger of God that sin deserves. The atonement is not God forgives. How does God forgive? By dealing with the consequences of our sin as they were imputed and reckoned to his son. The curse that we deserve, he experienced in our place. Right? It doesn't, uh, it doesn't simply, ex- he doesn't simply experience it in solidarity alongside of us, but, but as a substitute in our place so that we, we may never have to experience the curse. He is a shield between us and the anger of God. The anger, oh, that shouldn't be squashed, it should be quashed. The anger is quashed because Christ exhausts it in himself. The flaming sword uh, of the seraphs guarding the entrance to uh, Eden, guarding the entrance to the tree of uh, life. That flaming sword is plunged into the very heart of the Lord Jesus. That's the picture. The way back to paradise, the way back to the tree of life that you see in Revelation uh, 21 and 22 uh, the way back is is the flaming sword has someone has to someone has to meet the flaming sword right he has run the gauntlet so that by the time we get there the sword is no more it is gone 
Now, this view, of course, requires a view and an understanding of uh, the, the anger of God. It, it, uh, it necessitates that you, that you understand the Bible to teach that God is angry with sin. That God, uh, God is, is wrathful towards sin. There is a doctrine of the wrath, the anger, the divine anger, the, the reflex of the holiness of God toward sin. And that view has been challenged. Um, it, it was challenged by certain translations, uh, sacrifice of atonement or atoning sacrifice uh, was in part motivated by a, a desire uh, to, um, to, uh, and a reluctance to speak of divine anger or divine uh, wrath. Now, was it two years ago, a long time ago, when we were talking about the doctrine of God and we were going through the attributes of God and, and we spent an evening, I think, talking about the wrath of God. Uh, we talked about C.H. Dodd uh, and here's, here he is, here's his picture, C.H. Dodd. Uh, and C.H. Dodd uh, writing in the 30s, uh, first, uh, first quarter, second quarter maybe of the, of the 20th century, uh, some books here attributed to him, uh, the Bible and the Greeks, uh, of course, um, uh, the, you, can almost, you can almost guess where he's going to go with that uh, Greek view of God and, and uh, this idea of uh, a wrathful, angry God is a Greek idea and not a biblical idea and we need to get away from, from uh, that kind of thing. Uh, perhaps that's his most extensive critique of it. His very famous commentary on Romans, especially his exposition of uh, Romans 3.25, which we'll come to in a minute. Uh, his commentary on uh, John and, and 1 John and uh, the meaning of Paul for today. And then other, other authors, big names like Vincent Taylor and Donald Bailey. Uh, these, these are all early, early mid-20th century authors. Uh, all of them with the same agenda, the same view uh, that the idea of wrath, the idea of anger. I say wrath, you, you say wrath, right? As long as we all know. Uh, I was at Ligonier and uh, uh, somebody, <laughs> I talked about trousers having turnips and she, she thought I was saying turnips, so it kind of messed everything that I was trying to say because I meant cuffs, of course, cuffs turn up, it's a British term, turnips, cuffs, I'm not talking about the vegetable turnips. I was talking about cuffs. Well, I say, I say, I say wrath, and you say wrath, right? And and here's here's the idea. It was a prevailing idea in liberalism in the 20th century that uh, this was a this was a doctrine. This was a view that was unworthy of God. It was abhorrent. God isn't angry. God is love. God loves everybody. God. The idea of anger or wrath. Uh, was unworthy of uh, of God. Now let's uh, let's see some response to this. Um, you know, this this and this needs to be said. Um, you know, no heresy um, succeeds unless there's some truth in it. You know, you should always bear that in mind. 
There's always a, there's always, there's always a modicum of truth in there somewhere. It's what, it's what helps it. I mean, if it was so bizarre and out of this world, it wouldn't succeed the way it does. And, and, and this one was, was tremendously successful because there was, there was perhaps some, some truth in it. Because God isn't like the pagan gods. You know, he's not like uh, Thor. Or, or uh, uh, you know, you know, you've seen, you've seen the multiple. Maybe you haven't, because uh, I haven't. But the, the the movies that are coming out about the Greek gods, and uh, they're angry and, 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 and fitful and unpredictable, uh, and uh, they get into m- moods and so on. Well, God isn't like that. The God of Israel is not like that. Everything that God does is absolutely, resolutely just. And righteous. Uh, there was a text, uh, Isaiah 27 4, in the King James, it, it was rendered, Fury is not in me. I'm not sure it can bear that translation. I need to ask Dr. Davis. I, I'm not sure that the text actually bears the weight uh, that uh, Thomas Chalmers, one of, his, one of his most well known sermons, was on that text, Fury is not in me. It was a sermon uh, that was saying that the God of Israel is entirely different from the pagan gods, the ancient Near Eastern gods or the, or the Greek gods or, or, or whatever. And, and, uh, that, uh, that, so there's some truth in it. But uh, the anger of God is a reality. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, who in their unrighteousness suppress, hold down, the truth. Um, and and uh, there, are, there are multiple texts, I've given you m- many of them here, in which, uh, uh, in, in which the, the wrath of God, the anger of God, is a reality. Because it's a reality within human nature too, that, that there is such a thing as a righteous anger. You know, when, you're, when your children do stupid things, silly things, that gets themselves or other people into harm, you love them. They're your children, but you're angry with them, and you, you demonstrate righteously. Who has ever done this righteously? But you demonstrate your anger. I remember one night my daughter did something. I can't even remember what it was now. But I remember saying to my wife, I was so angry. I said, I'm going for a walk. Because if I deal with her now, I'm probably going to kill her. (laughs) I said those words. And I said, I'm I'm going for a walk. And I said, I'll be, I don't know how long I'll be. And I walked around the block until my anger had cooled. And then I spoke to her in, I hope, more pleasant but firm tones. Anger is a reality. Conscience knows the reality of divine anger. That's Paul's argument in, uh, in Romans chapter 2 about, uh, about the Gentiles. That they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. This anger needs to be dealt with. You see, you can, be- you can believe in an atonement whereby God simply 
says you're forgiven. But in which case, you have to ask yourself the question, why did Jesus have to die? You know, if Jesus is without sin, this is my point, right? If Jesus is without sin, if he's sinless, why does he have to die? Because death is the wages of sin. Now you can say he died because even, even a righteous person will die. In which case there is no justice in the universe. Or you can say, and you have to say, that the reason Jesus died was because at the point of his death it was what he deserved. Because our sin had been imputed to him. Our sin had been reckoned to him. And at that point, it was what he deserved. He had become, as Luther said, the greatest sinner in the world by imputation. And God has no choice but to condemn him. But the wrath of God, the anger of God, the righteous indignation of God came down upon him. Now, um, let's look at this uh, text here in Romans 3. Uh, and in particular in verse 25. Uh, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Uh, Paul has been expounding sin, of course. He's been expounding sin in uh, Jews. And he's been ex- expounding sin in Gentiles. And, and he's reached that conclusion uh, at the end of 3.20 that, uh, that uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. That's his conclusion. And then, and then it turns. 3.21 is that, is that huge moment of turning uh, in Paul's exposition of the gospel. He's talked about sin and the universality of sin. And there is none righteous, no, not one. And then, and then that, but now. Uh, there's a famous sermon. It's probably the most famous sermon that Dr. Lloyd-Jones ever preached. Uh, and it's on those words, but now. It's a phenomenal sermon. Uh, if you can hear it, uh, download it, go to the internet, search for it. Uh, may, well, I'm not sure. It may be in our, in, in our system, but, uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful sermon just based on those two words, but now. There's sin and then there's God's response in the gospel. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Whom God set forth. Uh, the word can mean uh, propound or, or proposed or even purposed. God, God placarded him. God set him forth to show what? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. 
a covering. I think of that mercy seat uh, image. The law in that box condemning us, rendering us all guilty, uh, underlining the verdict here, there is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God sets him forth as a propitiation, as a covering by his blood, not the blood of uh, bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer, but the blood of his own son, the blood of Christ, by his blood. Now John Owen says there are four essential elements in propitiation. These are not in your notes. Uh, This is a thought afterwards. There are four essential elements in propitiation. One, there is an offense to be taken away. Two, there is a person who is offended who needs to be pacified. Three, there is an offending person, a guilty person. And four, there is a sacrifice. An atonement for the offense. Now, what does the word propitiation uh, suggest? And the word propitiation says the only way that our sins can be covered, the only way that our sins can be blotted out as though they were no more is that the wrath of God, the justice of God, the idea of satisfaction from last week, the wrath of God is fully appeased. It is exhausted in Jesus. Our sins reckoned to Jesus' account, and the wrath of God is exhausted, so that I need fear the wrath of God no more. I do not need to be afraid of the wrath of God. When I see the Lord in all his glory, I'll see open arms that welcome me as a son returning to a heavenly father. Because the wrath has been dealt with. It has been assuaged in the person of the Lord Jesus. In him. Now this view of propitiation, you see, requires us to take very seriously God's wrath, God's divine anger, that he hates sin. He is, sin is utterly abhorrent to him. The holiness of God requires that God respond to sin. You know, I suppose the story, um, and it, and it's, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those stories in the Bible that challenges our understanding of God, and that's, that's Uzzah, you know, Uzzah and the Ark. The Ark contained the tablets of stone. They contained the Ten Commandments. They, they were a. The ark was a visible representation of the presence of God. And when, and when that ark is finally making its way on a cart back to Jerusalem, going along 
bumpy roads like the roads here in Colombia <laughs> with potholes and and, and Uzer puts out his hand. He, you understand that, right? You, you understand that, why he would do that. And God strikes him dead. Now that's the challenge. I mean, does your, does your doctrine of God, is, is your doctrine of God able to explain the death of Uzer? As a, right, as a righteous thing. It was the right thing. It's a challenge, isn't it? If it was your husband, or son, or father, would you be angry with God? You have never, ever, ever any justification for being angry with God. Ever. Ever. It's a challenge, isn't it? That's why the word propitiation is so important. And there's no other word in the English language that we know of that will adequately translate this idea that in making atonement for our sin the wrath of God is dealt with so here's your challenge you have to use the word propitiation somewhere in a conversation or in prayer in a prayer use the word propitiation whom God set forth as a propitiation for our sins through his blood well, let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you. Thank you for the men who have, and women who have studied and have come to help us understand what it is that you are saying in the scripture and what you are saying in the cross of your dear son. What it took for you, Father, to pour out your divine anger upon your own son what that meant to you, let alone to your son. And that for us, that at the heart of God, there is a love for us and for our redemption. So bless us, Lord, as we, as we think again tonight about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.